What is going on? This is John from Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've chosen to listen today to our weekly teachings podcast. At Prodigal, we're all about two things, loving God and loving people. The best way to stay connected is to download the Prodigal Church mobile app available at your app store. There you can donate, watch past series, and stay up to date on all things Prodigal. Welcome to the finale of our You Lost Me at Leviticus sermon series. We hope that you've been tracking with us and connected through these symbols and pictures that were painted in the ancient laws that were fulfilled in Jesus and meant to grow us in our love of God and of neighbor. It's been a fun series. Now, with today's sermon, I really struggled because uh, it was meant to explore some of the things that we didn't cover in the first three weeks but there is an exorbitant amount of things that we did not cover in the first three weeks. And so I'm going to begin with Jim Henson's The Muppets. Okay, I grew up watching The Muppets, uh, The Great Muppet Caper, uh, The Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, So much of my childhood was watching these movies. And of course, I loved Kermit and Miss Piggy, Gonzo, Fozzie. But my favorite character was hardly a character at all. Maybe each film, he would have maybe 30 seconds of screen time. My favorite character was the Swedish chef, okay? And you could barely understand any word that he said, Uh, but there was this one word that you could always make out, okay? It was smorgasbord, okay? Smorgasbord. It's a fun word to say. I did not realize this until recently, but smorgasbord is a Swedish word. Uh, And that's why the Swedish chef says it so often. It's a type of Scandinavian meal that originated in Sweden. It was served buffet style with both hot and cold dishes of a bunch of various foods. It was a a smorgasbord. Okay, in our culture, it has come to mean a wide range of something, okay, a variety. And that's what you're going to get in today's sermon. A wide range of something, a variety, just a bunch of different things discovered in the book of Leviticus that just might change your life. So welcome to the Leviticus smorgasbord, okay? Uh, We're going to look at priests, continuous fire, big toes, purity laws, and we'll end with Jesus, okay? Sound good? Here to beard it. The role of the priests in ancient Israel uh, takes up a lot of space within the book of Leviticus. And what the priesthood became was not exactly what God had originally desired. Check out the heart for the priesthood in Exodus 19. It says this, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's desire was that his people would be a kingdom of priests. Instead, they became a kingdom with priests. Okay? And God acquiesces to the people and still uses this Levitical priesthood. Now remember, ancient Israel, they were image-oriented people, okay? symbols, pictures. They pointed to something else. And the book of Leviticus gives a detailed account of what the priests were to wear. Here's the wardrobe of the high priest in ancient Israel. First, we have the golden plate that's on the forehead. It says, holiness to the Lord. They are not to forget that God is holy and that they too are to be holy. 
Then we have the breastplate. It had 12 beautiful ornate gems and stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It was symbolic of the priest representing the people to God. Inside the breastplate is the Urim and Thummim. Now, no one knows exactly what the Urim and Thummim were, nor what they did. The words in Hebrew translate to light and perfections. Okay? It is believed to be something that helped discern the will of God to the people. At the bottom of the priest, uh, you'll see uh, bells that were attached to the bottom so that you could hear the priest moving about within the Holy of Holies. And if no bells were heard, the priest must have died in the Shekinah glory of God. Later traditions say that a rope was tied to the priest's leg so that if they died in the most holy place, their body could be dragged out without someone having to enter the Holy of Holies. And finally, he was barefoot, representing that the ground that he was always on was holy ground, okay? This is weird, right? The outfit is weird, the look is weird. If you came into our church and our pastors were wearing this, okay, you wouldn't come back. We wouldn't get a second visit from you. Why? Why get them in these weird costumes, okay? because a picture is worth a thousand words. Symbols told stories in the ancient world. They were to be holy. The Hebrew word here is kadosh. It means different, set apart, sanctified. And this really is the great theme in the book of Leviticus. Um, 11.44 says this, be holy because I am holy. I am holy. Holy doesn't mean perfect. And I just need to repeat that just a couple more times so that we understand that. Holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart, different, sanctified, unique. The priests were to display a set apart God with their set apart life. They were to put God on display. And so are we. If the world is going to see a God who is different, then they need to see a people that are different. If the world is going to see a Kadosh God, then we need to be a Kadosh people, different, set apart, sanctified. If we're not different kinds of employers than, the, than everyone else, if we're not different kinds of employees than everyone else, if we're not different kinds of sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, if we're not these different kind, we're missing out. We're missing out on God's calling on our lives to be a holy nation, a priesthood, to be holy because he is holy, set apart. How are you set apart from everyone else? Because if, if it's not the manifest love and grace of God, we're missing it. If you just memorize scripture, that's not being set apart. If you just go to church, that's not being set apart. It is about showing, representing God to the world. And we do that with love. And for the priest, part of being set apart was making atonement at the altar. Check out this responsibility of the priest, Leviticus 6. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning 
on the altar continuously. It must not go out. It was always ready, always available for people to make their offerings, okay? 24 hours a day. This was the first 7-Eleven. Always open, always burning. God was always ready to commune with his people. The continuously burning divine fire at the altar helped remind the Israelites of the reality of God's presence with light by night and smoke by day. It, 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 it relayed the reality of God's presence and their need for God. Now, it did rain back then, yet the priest had to work even harder to keep the fire burning. 24, 365. The sacred fire endured throughout the 40 years in the wilderness and likely beyond that um, as tabernacle worship continued until the time of King Solomon in the building of the temple. Now let's try something else from this smorgasbord. Leviticus 8, we find detailed instructions uh, about the ordination of the priests, okay? Their, their public confirmation. Uh, the first service as pastors of the people. Check out this in Leviticus 8. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on their lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And then to make it even weirder, he splashed blood against the sides of the altar. Okay. Now our church is going to be celebrating our five-year birthday this upcoming September, and we've got a lot of fun things planned. I'll never forget our first church service at Bullard. Okay. We had a lot of fun, but you know, you know what we didn't have was a sacrifice and then the board of directors putting blood on my right ear, my right thumb, and my right big toe, okay? We left that part out of this ordination service, okay? We didn't have that. What is going on here? Why is Moses doing this? What, what is the deal with those extremities, okay? Well, they were a picture culture, okay? The right ear is because in the ancient Near East, uh, they were a culture of hearers, not readers, okay? Most were illiterate. So it was required for the priests to hear God and obey God. The priests were to live differently because they were the hearers of the oracles of God. Therefore, the blood of the sacrifice was placed on the right ear so that they would correctly hear God and obey, hear the people and relay their requests. It symbolized the commitment of their mind to the Lord. They were to think about holy things. And it echoes what Paul says. He says, think about what is holy, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable, whatever is noble. If anything is lovely or praiseworthy, think about such things. Next, the blood was applied to their thumbs. Well, they, they, this applied to their work. The priests needed their thumbs to cut and burn the sacrifices. There was, if you didn't have a thumb, it'd be really difficult to work in the temple and to serve properly. Blood on the thumb symbolized that they were committed to doing the work of God. The priests also needed their thumbs as they gave their, the Aaronic benediction, okay? Uh, I don't, don't know if you know this, but this symbol here is the Hebrew symbol for Shin, which represents El Shaddai, God Almighty. Okay, Spock used this in Star Trek. 
this is biblical. Live long and prosper. Then uh, it was the big toe, right? The big toe was touched. Um, and it was about uh, representing how they are to walk righteously before God. It's difficult to walk without a big toe. Balance can become an issue. And so it, it was a reminder to walk righteously. All of these were to be symbols of their call to be God's servants from the head to the toe. Now all of this is bringing me back to the 1990s worship song that you heard earlier, uh, Take Me In. Here's the lyrics. Some of you Christians who were maybe in youth ministry or in church in the 1990s, you'll remember this song. It, it's, the, the verse goes, Take me past the outer courts into the holy place, past the brazen altar, Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people, the priests who sing your praise. Lord, I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, and it's only found one place. Take me into the Holy of Holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take me into the Holy of Holies. Cleanse, take the coal. Cleanse my lips. Here I am. I was 14 years old, singing that song with all my heart. Okay. Apparently, I understood the Levitical priesthood and the layout of the t tabernacle and temple at such a young age. Okay? I didn't have a clue what I was singing. Uh, studying Leviticus is like 10 years of studying music theory and then listening to Mozart and Johann Sebastian Bach. The first time you hear these brilliant composers, you're like, wow, this is, this is pretty good. It's pretty good. But if you studied music for a decade and then you went back and listened to Mozart and Bach, you begin to see and hear things that you never heard or seen before. That is what it is like to read Leviticus, to immerse yourself in the Torah, the law, the Levitical code, and then go back and read the New Testament, read the life and teachings of Jesus. You see things that you missed. You discover a deeper meaning. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, the high priest, blood spilt on the altar, the altar of God being open 24-7, they all point to Jesus. The Jewish rabbis had a saying. They said, Torah, or law, is like a diamond. You turn it, you turn it again, and you turn it again because everything is in it. There's always a deeper meaning. It's not just about rules and rituals and regulations. There's always something more. And when we look at the scripture as a whole and through the life and teachings of Jesus, it comes to life in a new way. We see the brilliance, even more so, the genius of Jesus. So today, as we close, we're gonna, we're gonna turn the diamond a bit, okay? As we close out our series on Leviticus, let's listen again to Bach and Mozart after studying music theory. Let's read the life of Jesus after studying Leviticus, okay? The purity code. That's the weird stuff in Leviticus. We barely have talked about that, okay? It gets extremely specific and uh, uncomfortably real, okay? Uh, check out this passage in Leviticus 15, verse 25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, she will be unclean. Any bed she lies on will be unclean as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. Strange, right? Weird, right? 
Okay, this is in the Bible, okay? First off, unclean doesn't mean sinful, okay? That's an important thing to know. There's nothing sinful about a woman's natural cycle. And though I don't understand every aspect of this law or of the purity codes in Leviticus, there seems to be a connection between life and death and blood. And in the ancient world, not only was the woman unclean, but everything she touches unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean. And if you touched what she had touched, you're also unclean, okay? Right here in Leviticus, we discover the origin of cooties. All this time, it was right there in front of us, okay? But when you were unclean, you would just bathe, uh, wait the prescribed amount of time, and then boom, you were clean again, okay? Now check out this verse in Leviticus 21. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother, okay? Dead bodies is a huge no-no in the purity codes of Leviticus. Not only could you not touch a dead body, but you couldn't be in the same room as a dead body. Not even if it was your mother or father, it would make you unclean. Only the nearest kin could handle the burial rites of a loved one. If you touch the corpse, you are dramatically unclean. Now, it is with these weird laws in mind Let's look at Jesus. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter five and you can follow along in the Prodigal Church app as well. It says this, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. He begs Jesus, put your hands on her now because he knows that if she dies, that he can't put his hands on her, okay? You can't touch, he'll be unclean. It continues, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, this is so much more than just a simple medical difficulty, okay? She was a pariah. She was an outcast. She was a reject. She was untouchable. She was undesirable. She was bleeding for 12 years. She had been unclean for 12 years. She would be excluded from every aspect of Israelite life. No human touch from anyone for 12 years. Distance from her loved ones. This was her identity. When she was walking, people would leave and walk on the other side of the street. They fled to the other side of the road. She was an outcast. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered. Yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at the feet of Jesus, trembling with fear, and told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, 
Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In her desperation, she hears Jesus coming by. She reaches out just to touch his cloak, which would also make him unclean. She would be touching something and Jesus would be touching it as well. This move would render Jesus unclean. But what happens instead? Something extraordinary. She is healed and thereby rendered clean, capable of reinstating herself into the community. According to the religious rules of the day, the situation would go in one direction. This woman would make Jesus unclean. But in this encounter with the Son of God, it goes in the opposite direction. Instead of her making Jesus unclean, when he, she touches him, he makes her clean. Mozart, Bach, do you see the connection with Leviticus here and how radical and scandalous this was? The story continues. We can't forget about Jairus and his sick daughter. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in. He, he went in? No, no, he's gonna be unclean. You can't be in the same room as a dead body. Nothing can be done. It continues, Jesus said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand. What did he do? He touched her. He brought others into the room. And he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is so much more than just two beautiful healing moments. Notice it was a woman who had been plagued by this perpetual bleeding for 12 years, and then this little girl who is 12 years old. 12 represents the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. You, me. And this is the one of only three times in the entire gospels where we hear the authentic, actual words of Jesus. You see, the New Testament was written in Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic, but there are three times where they preserve the Aramaic, even in the Greek text. One was he heals a deaf and mute man. He touches his ears and his tongue, and then he looks up to heaven and says, Afatha, be opened. The other time it are, his actual words are recorded is on the cross it, when he is giving up his spirit, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the third time, is right here. Talitha kum, little girl, get up. How beautiful 
that the words that awaken this little girl are the same words her mother and father would whisper in her ear every morning as she awoke. Did you notice the parallel in Mark chapter 5 with the book of Leviticus? What is supposed to happen doesn't happen. She is dead. She is going to make Jesus unclean. But instead, Jesus brings life and brings other people into it. Whatever you are going through, there is a script of what is supposed to happen. But in Jesus, what's supposed to happen doesn't happen. Even in his own life, dead people don't rise. Jesus did. He brings life where there's death. He brings healing where there's sickness. He will make the unclean clean. He will make the dead live. He will make the unlovely lovely. He does it for me, and he does it for you. Thank you for the beauty of this scripture, this story, of this words that you said, literally, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. The subversive nature of your ministry and your love. God, let us be changed by it. We need you. We love you. In your name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is Father's Day. and We've got a special gift for all the men in our lives. We invite you to join us in person at the Bullard High School Theater at 10 a.m. It's going to be an absolute blast. We pray God's blessing on you, your family, and your friends. Peace in Ukraine.